0: I, I had to download it this morning because it's been like two years since I opened Skype. Just <laughs> that, so you know, <laughs> that, that, that is like that is like the uh, the one thing I do when I have people on my podcast. They're, my gift to them is now they have to have Skype again. <laughs> writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, Conversations About Writing. I'm Dr. Brian Moritz. Today's guest is Dr. Jeremy Leta, Associate Professor at Lehigh University.
1: Jeremy, first of all, welcome aboard. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Thank you for having me. Although I got to tell you, uh, this is a weak follow for Bob Costas. I think you can do better than that. I
0: I, I like to think of I, I like to think of him as a good opening act for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. So uh,
0: so uh, before we get to anything, do do we have to talk about the cereal bracket that was making the rounds yesterday on Twitter? Um, oh my god. Okay, I'm looking I'm looking at it right now. It's the SB Nation uh, best cereal bracket. Um, yeah, and yeah, this is a travesty. I mean, there, I, I can't even begin. I'll let you go off on on what's wrong with it before I, I give mine. But this is just, this is shameful.
1: So, well, I mean, the presence of healthy cereals or marginally healthy cereals like Rice Krispies on to, is a is problematic, right? Right. right. Um, like, like who, like, as my, my friend Bob Britton pointed out on Twitter, yesterday, so who gets excited about Wheaties, right? Right. Um, but Rice Krispies, really? Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so well,
0: I, I mean, the only way you vote for Rice Krispies is a if you're being like the Nate Silver contrarian and doing like the well, you can do Rice Krispie treats and they're more versatile as a thing, but as a cereal, they're crap. I mean, they, they shouldn't they should not have made it out. Of, I don't know. They, they must be in a weak conference to get that eight
1: seed, but um, I, yeah, but still, I mean, any cereal by definition that you have to add sugar to to make it edible for yes. anybody under like the age where you're trying to get healthy, like 35, that's, pr- that's a problem. Right. Um, you, you know, <laughs> it, it was, it was garbage. And, um, you know, I, I, I pointed out yesterday that this actually got more action than I planned on, but like they had Cap'n crunch as an entry rather than like the entire array of Cap'n crunch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, Captain Crunch is not a thing, right? I mean, it's you, you, most people if I said Captain Crunch, uh, you know, you're going to get some people who think the original, They'll think those people are are trouble. Um, <laughs> and then there's Crunchberries and it seemed like there was the Crunchberries versus peanut butter divide is what I was Ooh, running into. Okay. Uh, okay. And uh, you know, I'm a peanut butter person. it's, it's you can't uh you, you can't uh you can't just combine them into one thing because they're very different kinds of cereals, right? Congrats but you know, they got Golden Grams is a six seed that's, in, in one cool, of the regions.
0: Which is awful, awful.
1: Oh, and then they pair it up against Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I mean, like that's 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 the the uh, group of death, as it were, for for the cereal oh, bracket, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> So I I don't know I mean they were were, there was missing it was missing uh, if you want to put healthy options there think like oatmeal squares which at least taste good right or like Uh, a
0: kashi or something like that you can have at least a little you know you know okay you're I don't know how you know your mileage varies on kashi but at least if you're going healthy you're going all out wheaties isn't healthy wheaties is just you know, you get for the bo- you, you get like when Michael Jordan was on the box, and you got it because Michael Jordan's on the box, and you think he eats Wheaties for for breakfast, even though right. he knows he doesn't. So,
1: yeah. Wheaties is an untitled Michael Jordan vehicle. I mean, like <laughs> it could have been called anything, right? I mean, right? so yeah, it's just it's it the, the the bracket was garbage. Like if you, I assume that's why they're putting these things out. Their are Nation was like trying to get people talking about their bracket because we're not really voting on this, right? No. So. Um, but you know, just, just looking at the list is like, there's so many things left out. I mean, Raisin Bran, I can understand being a staple, but I don't, you could have eliminated Wheaties, Rice Krispies and Raisin Bran and stuck some actually good cereals in there. Right. And, uh, but as I, I said, I think, I think Cabin Crunch deserves its own bracket. Um, and we, we could have had, we could have probably had that. And then like all the different kinds of, um, Oh, I don't know. You could maybe all the different Cheerios flavors, you know, right. Honey Nut Cheerios oh, yeah. go up against like, like strawberry Cheerios. Uh, um, let's see, so the um, the protein ones are good. I mean, there's they're healthier for you, I right. suppose. So
0: <laughs> one of the best things we have uh, in Rochester, Riley, if we have a cereal bar that opened in the past year and it is just, they have like, what? I don't know 50 60 types of cereal. It's a it's a comic book store what? cereal bar. Yeah, you go and you can like mix like do any kind of mixes. They like come up with some like themed ones for the holidays. Like at one time I went I forget what it was. It was right around Halloween so it was a, a count Chocula... With like a bloody thing, so like a like a, a just cherry <laughs> drizzle or a strawberry drizzle or some drizzle on it with chocolate milk. You can c- combine the milks. It's genius because the overhead's oh, nothing on that,
1: right? Wow, that's so, nice. So, well, you know what? That actually, that the monster cereals could have been their own bracket too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, so we could have had a monster cereal region. Uh, a Cap'n Crunch region, you know, and then you could have had some Rando on the other side, you know, or I'm not sure which, but... Like, like, like
0: the Great Nuts bracket for the old people or something like
1: that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But like, you know, Golden Grahams and Cinnamon Toast Crunch being, by the way, not number one seeds, but also in the same bracket. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like... That's like the Duke in North Carolina of this the cereal competition, if you ask me. Nope. I mean, I was advocating for Captain Crunch, and I don't even think it's the best cereal in the bunch. But <laughs> those are both those are both slighted top seeds. Absolutely. You know, Golden Gramps gets treated like a mid major. It's ridiculous. It is so. Um,
0: well, we are into. I mean, this is America's best cereal. Did you talk podcast. about this
1: with Bob Costas? So,
0: <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about that earlier today. Like, there was a like, no, obviously, but like, but like, there there's some level of of of, of wanting with me in that podcast to like want to ask him like, so the cereal bracket, what do you think? <laughs> Cause you know, he didn't see it. He's not on Twitter. He's not on social I'm media. Sure. So, so there's no way he saw it. But um, but I'd love to get it. I'd love to get his take on the on the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Golden Grams bracket. I'm so, sure he has an opinion. I'm sure he does. So, um, well, we'll move away from this being America's best cereal podcast. Um, <laughs> so um, before we get to uh, the main stuff I wanted to talk about, which is uh, you going viral, uh, I just
1: wanted to uh, have you talk a
0: little bit about your career path and how you got to where you are right
1: now. Oh, what a long, strange trip. Um, I, I graduated from college in 98 and went right into print journalism right about the time that print <laughs> journalism was on its last legs, although I don't think we knew it. Um, I worked in I worked in industry for about six uh, seven years as a print journalist professionally and um, bounced around. I got my first job up near Sacramento and then was a, a, a impossibly named a sports editor of a small daily <laughs> about a year and a half later out in Carson City, Nevada. I still don't understand how how in the world they decided I was worth hiring, but. Um, uh, and then I went to LA Daily News, and I, I worked there for about four years. Um, that was at the time the it was the Daily News and the LA Times and the Orange County Register were all separately owned, and they were kind of competing for different swaths of the Southern California territory. Um, and I was part of I was part of the the LA Daily News was a, a part of the a flagship of that LA news group uh, group of papers. You know, they had just bought Torrance uh, mm-hmm. Daily Breeze out there, um, and so. Combined for all the circulation they had, they, they were a little bit bigger than the register. Um, after I left the Daily News in 2004, they they, um, they bought the register so um, that they got folded into them. But we, I was part of the media news group, uh, the, the uh, <laughs> famous cost-cutting uh, chain that, that we were. Uh, went back to grad school in 04 and I attended. It was weird. I went went back thinking I was gonna get my master's retool in digital because I kind of saw this coming. I I saw the digital wave coming, and it was not gonna be pretty. As it turned out, when I got there, I had no idea what this digital wave actually was gonna look like because I hadn't even considered things like social networks. I, I saw self publishing mm-hmm. happening. You know, early '01 and I think I logged on to Blogger for the first time. I thought, oh my god, this is gonna destroy us. <laughs> um, but you know, I didn't see I didn't see the the effects of the 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 things that came after friendster and what how it was going to really dismantle things it was i i think i first saw craigslist no four it took me about a year to realize this was going to destroy us mm-hmm. so so i stayed through my phd at mizzou um got that in 09 then i started at lehigh it was my first first and only academic job so i uh, you know it, 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 intending to go back in industry and i decided to stay because i fell into a really interesting citizen journalism project while i was at mizzou my first semester as a master's student and um really fell in love with the idea of self-publishing and social networks, and and so I stayed through. I produced one of the first social network um, topic uh, dissertations in our field um, at the time, and um, so I was kind of a I went on the market at a time when I was kind of ahead of a wave that was coming for like the next, next generation of ways of studying online. So it was kind of a niche for me and I kind of took advantage of it while I had the chance. So we're kind of, we're contemporaries both in
0: when we graduated college and kind of our, our academic career path You've been, you went a few back a few years before I did, but, uh, but, but I, I love looking back at that era that, like that early to mid two thousands era. And what, how did we blow it so bad? Like, I know we're going to get into that as an industry, but just kind of on a more personal level. Level like you didn't kind of you said you didn't really understand digital or didn't see how it was going to destroy us until you got back to grad school and like I was, I think I was the same way so I'm wondering like why why did we miss it as broadly as as we did
1: um, I I don't know about you but I I logged on the internet for the first time in 1993 um, as a college student and so I saw its potential I mean I taught myself HTML in college because they weren't teaching stuff like that mm-hmm. um, so it's I, I got the digital production piece of it. And I understood, I understood how to navigate online. In fact, I kind of consider myself a rare Xer who's, uh, who kind of is comfortable in online spaces. I didn't grow up in them like, like the, like the people who came about 10 years after me. Um, But I feel like I was a creature of online bulletin boards and online spaces. I wasn't, I was, I was, I was not there in, in the days before the public, internet, obviously. Um, but as far as Al Gore's internet goes, I was, I was pretty, uh, I was, I was pretty, pretty invested early on. We had a bulletin board system at our school and it was just, it was always a place of discussion for me. But, you know, when I got to the newsroom, to me, I thought about the internet as a place to do publishing. And so I, I had my HTML skills really valuable. I think the mistake I made, um, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like I didn't do enough to educate my newsroom about what was coming, you know, like that, that, that I knew about publishing, and I knew vaguely about self-publishing, but I was working in a newsroom full of people who didn't really get this stuff. I, I remember... <laughs> so I remember a training in 2002 in my newsroom where they were trying to convert us to electronic pagination for the first time. Oh, OK, God. so this is a <laughs> media. Again, this is a media newspaper. We we cost cut like nobody's business. Right. So they were training us how to go from pay stuff, <laughs> which I mean, I your audience probably know what I'm talking about. Like the thing where you're exacto knifing uh, uh, printouts of your copy and putting it on a pasteboard to, to put it on a press eventually. They were teaching us how to use it, um, a, an InDesign-like program on, on the Mac, and they were um, – I remember they, they had a room full of people. It's kind of like a computer lab, and they said, okay, now to, to select an object, you click on it with your mouse. And so I saw somebody in the room, and I will not name their name, and nobody would know them anyway. She picked up her mouse, and she put it on the screen, and she clicked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> um, I mean that's the, kind of, that's the kind of newsroom I got into. Um, and I think a lot of us did because, you know, there was, there was still a lot of long timers there who were just kind of getting comfortable with computers. I mean, when I got to the daily news in 2000, uh, 2000, they didn't even have the internet there. It, mm-hmm. was, it was another six months before we got it. I mean, it was a dial up connection. Um, so I so,
0: had, so I, I had a similar thing in my in my newspaper in Olean. Now, granted, much smaller market, but my first year, and I was kind of like you. I was hired because I had a GeoCities page, and that impressed them enough to make me the online editor, along alongside being a news reporter. Um, wow! Which I, I, I know. <laughs> um, which, again, for all the people too young to know that, that's like basically having a blogger site. That's all it was. Like we got, I got really good at making the the, the blinky text. Because you could do that in geo cities, um yeah. but like we had one- our, we had one computer that went online, a computer that went online, and like we would check the email like once a day and like and like print it out <laughs> or send it to people like we yeah. didn't even have our own email addresses it was it's uh, i am sorry to have cut you off, but like this is kind of oh, it was such another time and another era that like seems incomprehensible now.
1: I mean, think, I mean, that's a really instructive example, though, because think about this. I mean, I don't think I ever had. No, I'm sorry. My last year, of the Daily News in 03, we finally got dailynews.com email address. Mm-hmm. And think about that. I mean, you got within three years, they were demanding people sign up for Twitter accounts where like you have people who have access to you and can send you feedback whenever they want. And like. To go from a place where like you're really not getting that other than the occasional angry phone call to being in a socially networked environment now where media is happening all the time and you're asking people who barely know – in some cases don't have a smartphone to, to, to understand and grok this is just um, – you know, that's 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 a lot. That's a lot mm-hmm. to ask. So I mean I kind of feel like if, if you want to ask about mistakes, I mean it was just that I think that the young uh, – older – the late generation Xers like me um, could have done a lot more, I think, to um, to to educate the newsroom about it. now whether they would have taken us seriously or not as youngins, because there's you know the, you, you know how it goes in newsrooms. There's kind of a bias against youngsters, right? Um, and and not like not like we hate them. It's just that oh god, you have a lot to learn, you know. Right. And I think there's more going. <laughs> there, I'm not sure we would have been listened to, but I would probably have been a lot more alarmist once I saw Craigslist if I'd known then what I know now. Well,
0: um, it, it's funny that you, how you mentioned like our bias toward publishing, which I think is a really valuable way. To look at it because it really was all about hey let's get our stories online let's sharing them and what does that yield to i mean you know this as well as i do that yields to the well do we pay make them pay for content do we put it up for free what do we publish i mean i tell my students all this and you know they're they're young so they don't they they look at me like i like the antediluvian dinosaur that i am but like we used to put up like five news stories a day three sports stories a day Right. You know, but, and that was it. And if there were six local news stories, well, one of them is going to make the cut, which is ridiculous, you know, <laughs> looking back on it. But right. But you do. But you, but I do think about that, like if we hadn't, you know, kind of been so public, you know, publication oriented and more kind of socially networked and seeing it as that. But at the same time, you know, it's one of those things where I think it's very easy for all of us. To look back and look back and say, well, what we didn't do right. But then I do think of your newsroom where the person is putting the mouse on the screen to click. And like that was the reality. And like, how do you convince this person to get into to think of journalism as like this socially networked process oriented thing as opposed to, you know, the product based thing like Like the hill was so was so steep. It was like a vertical line
1: looking back on it. Well and I th- I, to be fair, I think we need to be kind to ourselves you and I uh, because a lot of these decisions that set in motion this chain of events were out of our control oh, I mean yeah. journal the newsroom the news organizations should have invented search they mm-hmm. should have invented social networks um, if they had invested in technologists and futurists, um in the late 80s early 90s and probably going back into the early 80s i think they would have been ahead of this in ways that like you may never have seen google um google would have been the new york times in an ideal world where newsrooms figured out how to become the next generation of ways to access information you need and they would own that space and mm-hmm. so really by the time you and i hit newsrooms i i, I entered the, my first newsroom in 98 professionally i don't know about you but um you know, we, the, the, the die had been cast like we were done. I mean, right. It was just an, it was inevitable at that point, because even if they had made those investments starting in 96, 97, 98, they would have been too behind. Um, right. There was there was no way that they were going to catch up. I mean, What what happened in the middle part of last decade was inevitable.
0: Right. And th- and this kind of gets to uh, the your big Twitter thread from February, which is kind of what I wanted to, to talk to you about, um, because you like legitimately went viral. Like not in a little like viral way where like a hundred people like my tweet and oh my gosh this is crazy but like what were your do you do you have or do you remember what your final numbers on this thread were
1: I was putting together something for a lecture and I I I mapped it at the one month mark uh, mm-hmm. so it was it was January twenty fourth was the mm-hmm. first day of the, the that I posted on it and by February twenty fourth it had about eight million impressions um almost <laughs> nineteen thousand retweets. Um, likes the uh, just on the very first initial post because it was like a 42 post thread or some sort. Mm-hmm. The very first post had about 42,000 likes. Um, and like if you go down the thread, there's more retweets and more more likes and things like that. So, but I mean, it puts it put it in front of an audience of about a million people, which is insane to me. I mean, I don't even. I did, it, it, my most popular post I think before that might have gotten something like 750 retweets. <laughs> um, I mean. <laughs> I went from I went from three thousand followers to fourteen thousand followers in a week. That's cool. So that tells you <laughs> I'm still an H list celebrity on Twitter. <laughs> like fourteen thousand is not much, but I mean, just just that audience jump alone, I think uh, it, it was interesting how quickly that happened. So, what, what kind of walk me through
0: that, that that thread? What I mean, what specifically sparked it, and how did that kind of that using using Twitter as a medium for writing it? How did that come about?
1: Uh, you know, it's interesting the. Uh, the, the Genesis happened about three days before. Um, there was the, the announcement of the, uh, the Buzzfeed layoffs, mm-hmm. I believe it was. Um, and it was a Monday night. So the, uh, and, and Chris Hayes tweeted something out cause he, he retweeted the news about the Buzzfeed layoffs and he asked a question, um, you know, is how come we can't figure out a sustainable model for news? And, um, I quote tweeted him, which is what, one thing I do a lot on Twitter. I, I take somebody's thought and and amplify it, but also add a little bit of something to it rather than just like, yep, I agree with this. <laughs> um and in this case I said, you know, we talked about this in my intro class just this morning. Um it was a it was the uh the period of consolidation and lack of investment in newsrooms in the eighties and early nineties um was what set the stage for this because the newsrooms have been playing from behind and they're too buried in debt. And Chris Hayes retweeted that. Um, now, I think one thing I had going for my advantage in this case, I think he saw it because I was Twitter verified at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, there's a, there's a special thing on the app uh, for those of you who are not verified out there. <laughs> uh, um, yes, like me. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, on the app once you're verified there's a special mentions um, from verified users uh, tab uh, on your mentions uh, screen so like you can see who's, who's who's mentioning you on Twitter but there's also a second layer you can go to that just like, talk about people who are just verified who are talking to you and I think that's how he saw me because I mean he's got millions of followers at this point I mean it doesn't really matter um, if just random people are tweeting at him so he, he t- retweeted it and it got something like 600 reshares and yeah. I was looking through it just because I was curious because it was taken off and on Monday night and Tuesday, and I'm looking through it and like there's a lot of journalists in this. I'm going how wait what what how come journalists don't? I mean I had comments mm-hmm. from people saying I didn't know this, and I'm going what? So I was thinking about it for a couple of days, and then I got past my Wednesday class because I'm done teaching for the week on Wednesday, and um, so Thursday in the afternoon I was just thinking about it. It's like you know what I'm just gonna bang this out now. At the time again I've got three thousand followers. Most of my audience is journalists. Um, and people who are interested in media, Lehigh folks, you know, old friends, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So I was thinking about this in terms of a thread that was for people who who probably don't have a lot of sophistication in like the history of media and things like that. And I wrote it from that perspective. I, it was, I, I could have written a blog post, but I was thinking, you know, if I just write a blog post and share a link, I don't think people are going to share it. So mm-hmm. I, I used my first tweet to say, in case you don't know why this is all happening, all these media layoffs are happening, if you think it's the internet – it's not really that there's something more going on in that and and here here is a long thread. <laughs> um and so that was my initial idea behind this was just to, to to share a story um, that by the way, is this a safe space? Yes. Um, this is my expertise area. <laughs> <laughs> like this is my, this is stuff I learned in grad school. I mean, this is not, this is not the stuff I study. I, about 20% of it is like networks and, and social networks. And I did share stuff in that thread, but a lot of it was like, you know, media economics and stuff like that. That's not my area. Right. But I, stuff I knew for like 10 years and I'm like, okay, I got, I've got something to say. I didn't think this was going to take off because I figured there was other people out there who were saying this that had said it better than me. Um and so that was kind of my thinking as I was sharing for a small audience but within about an hour I realized this was actually going to go bigger than that. And um so
0: when you actually wrote it like this is going to sound incredibly pedantic but I'm curious like did you write it in the Twitter app did you write it in like a Google Doc and then copy and paste it
1: to Fed how did you actually uh, write No this in fact I wrote it in real time which is why there were so many typos in the original <laughs> <thread>. um, <laughs> um I wrote it in real time on Tweetdeck um hmm. Yeah, I just uh I, I took the previous post and did reply to it the the way I teach my students to do it cuz like okay. when we do Twitter threads and I practice that stuff they're doing like three or four. Um mm-hmm. and I didn't exactly know how many they we were going to be and it ended up being something like 40. Um but um yeah, I wrote it in TweetDeck in real time.
0: So wh- uh when did you kind of realize was there a moment where you kind of realized like oh man, this is this is big?
1: Yeah, um well, I mean, I started, so I'm writing a tweet deck, and I've got my notifications my uh, like th- th- uh, column open, right? So I'm already seeing a lot of action on it by about 15, like 15th okay. tweet in. Um, and I'm getting a lot of, like, a lot of people who are commenting on it already and sharing it already. Um, it wasn't until I finished, and it was about a half hour later that I finished, um, after I started, that um, I noticed I was taking a look, and I, I saw some of the data. And it was, you know, it was up to, like, it was already by then up to about 800, I think. Okay. 800 shares, and I started taking a look at the names, and I I, I saw um, a couple prominent New York Times writers in there. Um, I think the guy who probably made this thing take off was Matthew Ingram, mm-hmm. um, because he, he he works for CJR, um, but he's he's got connections. Like, there's a lot of people in media who follow him, and and so he became my my uh, spoke and or my hub and uh, who's had a lot of spokes out there who basically become the guy who amplify it. So he was one, I think. But I just saw a couple big names in there who I knew had a lot of followers, um, and and that's when it starts to take off. Because I mean, and this is the stuff I teach. You know, if, if it, it, it you can have a few followers, but if you've got if you're followed by people with a lot of followers, if they choose to share you and it resonates with their, their audience, they become that that's when things take off. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So by about, by about an hour and I'd seen about three or four, I think Nick Kristoff shared it. I mean, like, it's just like, it was insane at that point. I'm mean, like, that's when I called my meeting relations person and said, uh, just so you know, <laughs> like, I start getting some inquiries or I may need your help on this because I don't know, I don't know where this is going to go. And by, by the next day I had offers to write and things like that. So, I mean, it was, it was, It was probably good I gave him the heads up on that because I kind of sensed about an hour in this was going to go big.
0: So when did your mentions finally become uh, manageable again?
1: Oh, it took about about five days. I mean, I couldn't – I had to turn them off uh, Mm -hmm. because it was just – I was just getting – I mean, my phone was sitting on my desk. Um, on Thursday and Friday, and it was just like nonstop because I have the buzzer on, mm-hmm. and it was just like I mean, like my poor phone and my, my battery I had to have it plugged in because it was getting drained. So I had to turn mentions off because it was just it was unusable. I had, I had probably about three thousand comments on the original post, and I probably ever replied to maybe maybe one hundred fifty of them because it was just too much. I just no way I could, I there was no way I could manage all that. I really actually finally understood what famous people go through like, like, and then this was like me, like 15 minutes of fame, but like, I don't know how people who are actually famous do this because there's no way to, there's no way to reply to that kind of volume. It's just, you know, and I know people get – I see people that express frustration online like, you know, how come famous people don't – they don't ever talk to the people? And it's like, well, OK, let me tell you a little <laughs> how that works. It's like it, you can. I mean it's much. I am a person who loves to reply to everybody because I think it's that's to me is what my Twitter ethic is. But I just had to make peace with the idea that I was going to let a lot of this go because there was no way to do it otherwise.
0: I was going to say because you mentioned me in a piece I wrote for Neiman Lab and – in the thread, in one of the tweets on the thread, and even my mentions from that were just, like, you know, not, n- not, not you know, of course, a fraction of yours, but even that. Like, yeah, it is staggering to think, like, um, what, like, Ariana Grande's Twitter feed must look like or something yeah. like that <laughs> yeah. if she opens
1: it up. Yeah. Um, so, you probably get some followers out of that, too, though, right? I mean, like... I if, definitely, if yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Thank you for that. Um, Sorry about that. (laughs) No, and
0: and it kind of gets at a larger idea, too, I wanted to hit at that you've written about, I think on Twitter and other places, too, and about public scholarship and kind of your thinking and and the importance of it. And just kind of talk a little bit about that and kind of where you see, you know, our academic work from a scholarly perspective, but now kind of uh, in, in more of a public sphere than maybe we're used to doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so I've always been an advocate of public scholarship, although not on this, not on this kind of thing. But I mean, I'm I, you, if you if you hang around my university, you'll hear me being the person who's stumping for open access publishing uh, mm-hmm. all the time, and and that we should be in we should be in social spaces and we should be blogging. You know, we should be turning our our, our behind paywall journal work into something that's public facing, at least a public facing version of it, mm-hmm. um, because I think that universities, when they're at their best, are driving public. A conversation about important issues that we knew academics, we get in the weeds sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> but, um, but that we do have something to contribute because we do have specialized knowledge in, in that's not all consuming. It's not that we are the final word on things, but we do have something to contribute. So I, I want to see us in these spaces. Um, my, my thing that I've always struggled with and I've, I've been, I've been in academia now for, um, about 10 years, finishing my 11th year here. Um, and that it, you know, I got tenure about three years ago. There's, there's very little attention paid in a place like I work to the value of public scholarship, that it's, it's something you can enter in your CV, but it's not seen as valuable, mm-hmm. um, it, relative to other types of venues you'd be, you'd be publishing in. But, you know, I, I I'm frustrated by academic publishing personally, you know, there's the, um, I've had stuff accepted and it takes a year to come out. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, you know, by then, I mean, in the area I work where it's digital media, that stuff's dated by the time it hits the press. Um, so I feel like public, the public arena is a place where we can instantaneously share things that are important. Um, but I also look at, you know, people like Kevin Cruz, for example, you know, who is a story on Twitter. He's, he's one of the people on the Twitter story and hashtag. I learn a lot from, um, Jay Rosen, and, um, NYU, um, you know, people who are out in the public eye. Uh, Meredith Clark um, is another r- r- does really amazing work on Black Twitter. Um, you know, people who are engaging the public on issues that of importance. And uh, you know, I feel like in a in a time when um, you know public edu- education is increasingly under threat of being defunded or seeing as less valuable, the people who need to be making the case for that we're valuable are the, are the, are the people who work in this stuff. And we need to show our work every day, you know, that, um, that we have something to contribute to the the public discourse. And, you know, I, I feel like to to the degree that we're hiding behind, um, walls, that we are less visible, which makes, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you know, the public's not going to necessarily think that what you do, um contributes to what uh the, the the some of the major conversations we're having in society at a time of tremendous change. So I you're going to hear me always advocate for this stuff. Now on on t- Twitter's a really interesting place because as you know it's a place of not just like straight like blogging where I control the conversation but it's a place of interaction and it's a place of personality um you know that I've don't have to do it my way, but I have definitely. You know, you uh, one day I'm blogging. I, well, same same day I'm tweeting about press freedom and and executive orders about campus free speech. On the same day I'm tweeting about Kevin Crunch getting sliced cereal packet. <laughs> I mean, like I've chosen to go that way. You don't have to do it that way, but I mean, there is an ethic to some of these spaces and the personalities of those social networks look really different depending where you are. And Facebook, you treat a Facebook page differently than you treat a Twitter feed, than you treat a Tumblr, than you treat a a, a medium space. So. Um, I I feel like there's some things as academics we need to kind of get educated on about how we engage in those spaces and what does the culture look like in those spaces and what's expected of us.
0: And and I find it so weird. I'm wondering why you think uh, academia in general is so kind of especially like journalism Twitter or media Twitter, you know, I'm not, I'm not qualified to speak on like hard sciences or anything along those lines. And obviously peer review on, it looks very different and is important, more important on the medical side than say, you know, my study on the athletic. Um, but, I, but I do wonder on, uh, from that perspective, why do you think academia as a whole is so slow to like accept the, the public scholarship model? Is it, the status that comes with peer review. Do you think it's just kind of like uh, institutionalism, and it's just kind of like, well, that's the way it's always been? Like, what do you think the the the, the driver of that is? Uh,
1: the incentive structure is all screwed up. I mean, I mean, when I went up for tenure, the only th- the way they evaluated my scholarship was to send out my packet of journal articles to. Something like ten external evaluators, and it was it was the job of other academics to say his work is good. <laughs> um, so like there's no public role in like assessing whether my work is good, right? So, mm-hmm. so in a public scholarship mode, how do you do that? I mean, you, you can you can leave it up to the aggregators basically. How many times did he get retweeted? How many how how what's the, what's the data look on his blog posts? You know, and you're you're kind of leaving it to the unwashed masses to decide. Um, You know, whether whether his work is worthy. And I think we have a real aversion to outsourcing anything that's not done through academia, you know, because Mm External review for, for tenure is outsourcing. It's it's right. basically relying on other people to, to, to basically stand in and say this work is good because we don't know. Uh, I'm in a car- college of arts and sciences. I was evaluated by like a biologist and a chemist and somebody <laughs> in psychology. I mean like we don't have a journalism school. So like how are they going to know whether my work is any good, right? Well, right. external evaluators became the thing. So that I mean that that bec- that's a really important piece of this puzzle because now when we start talking about public scholarship, how do we evaluate that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that relies on the public to say. I, mean, I, I I would look at a public scholarship evaluation of worthiness based on how much interaction does the does their blog post get, how much interaction they get on Twitter, what kind of work are they doing, and then um, how often are they cited in media? You know, mm-hmm. like do, do people want to seek you out for interviews? Um, that those are those are my probably more subjective ways of evaluating that, but I am pretty sure that I would have a very hard time convincing somebody of that because the minute we start outsourcing, there's going to have, there are going to be all kinds of questions about quality and and whether that's the right standard. And you know, you know, you mentioned being pedantic earlier. You think (laughs) (laughs) we we do that like nobody's business in academia. So um, I think that, I think that the incentive structure is all messed up. You know um, I would like to see, I would like to see us really push in the next decade in academia a, 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 an accepted practice of what public scholarship, what good public scholarship looks like. And more importantly, that we make that a key part of tenure and promotion standards um, that like it doesn't actually have to take part of the mythical 40, 40, 20, 40 percent research, 40 percent teaching, 20 percent service, which isn't really. It's more like 100, 120. <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, I would like to see it. I would like to see that become part of the forty percent research that they've expected. You know, like I, I can do pure journal stuff, but. If I do some public scholarship, it can take the place of some of that stuff you'd expect of me otherwise. Um, but to do that, we have to change our standards, and I think that that's a that's a broader conversation I think we need to have.
0: Well, and I like the idea too of the public facing nature of work. Like we all have papers in academia that are under review that don't get that don't get accepted or get revised or like chapters that we don't like like sections of, of research that don't necessarily get published or we're waiting to get published. And I don't and, and like to, for me that's a prime area for us to put that out publicly, whether it's a blog. Twitter or however, um, and and, and kind of, you know, you don't not waiting for that, you know, review or two to bless this article and let it go off into press and and, and to kind of, you know, show your work and, and be part of the conversation. Now, I am curious how much your attitude toward this has changed in the past couple of years, given all the stuff going on with Facebook and, you know, kind of Twitter's awfulness and, you know, we hate a social, w- whatever social network we're hating on each day. Um, yeah. And they're all worth hating on a lot of levels. But how does your thinking of like the, the public sphere and social and networks and all this, how's it evolving as we learn more about kind of the the long-term impact of these networks?
1: I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. I mean, I, I kind of feel like those are you kind of have to separate the public facing nature of your work from the, the, the network itself. Um, mm-hmm. that like, I mean, I, I, ref, I frequently refer to Twitter as a hell site, even though I use it all the time. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the, I mean, w I, I don't do public scholarship very much on Facebook. Um, but Twitter's become my venue for that because, mm-hmm that has the audience. I mean, like that's an audience full of journalists and, you know, people I want to have access to my work if I want to make an impact on the public conversation. So I've kind of chose, chosen Twitter, that space knowing that a, it's a place of a lot of abuse and b may, you know last forever. You know, you just don't know. I do. I think that, I think you have to kind of be open to, to being critical of the places where you are doing public scholarship that, you know, I, I criticize, um, I criticize the news media sometime, but I published in the Washington post just last month. You know, I mean, those are, I think you have to for um, for consistency reasons, I think you, you need to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, I think you know we we can't we can't be afraid of the platform. The, the the platform provides an opportunity for us to say things. And as much as I am critical sometimes of the ways in which like, you know, some of these organizations function, you know, they make awful decisions. Um that if they provide us a venue to say things, I think we need to take advantage of that because I don't think we have the the luxury of being purist about, you know, well, I don't I don't not gonna go on Twitter because it's an awful place. Um that being said though, I do think one thing that universities need to do if they want to encourage public scholarships is they need to figure out a way to protect their professors and academics who are doing this kind of work. Because um you know, we had a situation, I'm not going to name name a name, but we had a situation here at Lehigh last month with one of our, our great scholars who does um, tremendous work in the area of race, and she published an op-ed, and she got just buried with negative comments, threatening, abusive things. She had letters sent to her office, and um, they, they got campus police involved. And if the last I heard, I think they, they might have even gotten the FBI involved. Wow. Um, it's... I think we have to remember that you and I, as as white males, face a fraction of the abuse that women face. Um, we have research that says that that people of color, particularly women, um, face just the kind of abuse that uh, I, I can't even fathom. Um, and so, I think in in concert with any decision to elevate public scholarship as a good within the university, needs to come some investment in resources to protect the people. Um, who are saying those things? We don't want to make it um, a, make it difficult or um, untenable for our vulnerable faculty to weigh in on important public issues um, just because of their demographic characteristics. I, I think it's a really important thing. Um, it, you're going to find me if you want to ask what more of my thinking has changed on this in the last couple of years. Is that I need to be not just in the public arena, but we need a loud advocate. Um, for my my uh, my marginalized and vulnerable uh, fellow faculty and colleagues um, to defend them in spaces um, and stand up for them because that, that's that to me is is making use of my my platform and privilege to, to protect them um, and to, to let, to let them let the public know that I stand behind them
0: so I ask every guest on this I ask Bob Costas so
1: I'll ask you as well what's the best thing you've read lately Best thing I have read lately. Uh, you know, I I just referred, uh, we had Judy Woodruff here on campus the, uh, uh, early in the week, and um, she was she delivered a lecture, and I assigned my students uh, the Time Magazine, um, uh, uh, People of the Year uh, piece that uh, talks about the the journalists who lost their lives and have sacrificed a lot for the, for the profession. Um, I, I don't normally recommend People of the Year pieces because mm-hmm. <laughs> they are. They're often kind of vapid, but it was a very moving um, cover story that they produced that uh, I wanted my students to be exposed to. Um, so I, uh, I I I recommended that because I think it's uh, I just I it was that was there to seat a discussion with the students uh, and and Judy um, about. Um, The value of journalism in in this day and age and and what what journalists often sacrifice behind the scenes that people don't always know about I mean we they get visibility when they lose their lives but I think journalists make sacrifices. Every single day in their lives. I mean, you, you give up, you give up time with your children and spouse and you work nights and weekends and, and hellacious shifts. And those are not the life losing limb losing parts of the profession. But it, it, one thing I think is lost in the public discussion sometimes is, um, the sacrifices journalists make big and small to, to bring the, you the news and keep the public informed. And I think if we, that that story was out there more, I would hope that we could change this conversation away from maybe us being the enemy of the people and more like, the 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 people who sometimes make you angry you know? <laughs> um, you know and that's because of the human beings behind the scenes so that's that's one thing i would recommend awesome jeremy
0: that's a good good note to end on appreciate your time thanks so much absolutely thank you for having me As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguy.com on the Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz.